welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair. Would you like to tell us where we are? Or tell everybody where we are? We are at Windsor Public Library, um, Riverside Branch. And you wanted to give a little shout out about Windsor's libraries. I did because um, they're a big influence in um, my stories, my narrative arc, uh, which includes a character named Vera Maud who worked at the Carnegie Library, downtown Windsor, on Victoria and London Street at the time, now University. And uh, she's an employee there and uh, still visits the library constantly and uh, has many encounters with other librarians and, uh, and, and positive and sort of um, uh, messed up sort of ways. <laughs> I won't get into it without getting into it. Well, encounters much. with librarians are always interesting. <laughs> so I'm going to introduce you properly now. Uh, Michael Januska, born and raised in Windsor. Michael Januska has worked with books his whole life, both as a bookseller and for several publishing companies. He's the author of the Border City Blues mystery series set in the Prohibition area of Windsor, Essex. There are three books in this series, beginning with Riverside Drive. Uh, stories from Januska's Prohibition era Border City Blues novels have also won two consecutive Scene of the Crime short story prizes. He's the, also the author of The Grey Cup Century, and he now lives in Toronto. Did I get that right? There's another book coming. We'll talk there about is. that. St. Luke Road is in the works. That's the fourth novel in the Border City Blues series. And I'm trying to finish that. And it just gets more and more complicated because there are so many more and more characters and plot lines going on. And I have to find a way to tie it all together and try and <laughs> bring it all to some sort of fruition. Okay. And so that's the challenge now. So they, they, need, uh, they need their voices heard. We've also been chatting with Patrick Broad about his history book about the Prohibition era here in Windsor. And so much has been written about that era in this city. So you've taken the media of fiction for your approach, and yet you do so much research. Mm -hmm. What is about that process that feeds your work? It's, um, it's a bit of a rabbit hole some, sometimes, I have to say. Um, but I want it to be as accurate and true to the time and the places as possible and so I do research very heavily into uh, where my characters live, what their names are, what their neighborhoods were like, the streets they walked in, the places they worked, the businesses. So I want it to be as true to life as possible but at the same time the challenge is making it, it's, it's fictional, I'm telling stories, but I want it woven into something very real. And you're even looking up things like ads and prices for things. I do. I want to see um, how much, um, when someone went grocery shopping, what were they buying? What was available? Um, how much was a room to rent? How much was a car to buy? All of those things. I want to know what their day-to-day -day life was like. So there's this Hollywood idea sometimes of what prohibition and, and things like that were, were like. But I want to do something different. I want to... Um, show that these people had a daily life 
a street life, a family life, and what it was like for them, even though they were involved in <laughs> smuggling illicit um, booze and everything else, um, what it was like for them to go about their day-to-day business. Okay. Are there any real persons, living or dead, <laughs> featured in your fiction? I'm, I'm very cautious about that. I, I always, when I decide on a name, I look into city directories, and I look to see um, if those people still have descendants <laughs> in the city that I should be wary of or cautious of or respectful towards. And uh, I'm careful about that. But there aren't any, I don't think there are any single individuals um, that I've picked out and isolated and put them in a storyline. If anything, sometimes there's a sort of a, a conglomeration, like a combination of a few characters, a few personalities. And whether it's in the police department, politics, or just in, in the city street life and crime, I just try to amalgamate so I'm not really pinpointing anyone in, in, in particular. Uh, what other media influences your work? You're a film buff, aren't you? I am a film buff. Um, I love film noir and there are a number of films that have informed um, my writing in particular. Um, I would have to cite um, movies, recent, recent movies like um, Miller's Crossing, the Coen brothers. I love Miller's Crossing and that was a big influence of mine and I look at 40s era film noir as well and look at those movies and look at the dialogue and the speech and the setting and the tone and uh, I think it's about dialogue really for me Um, I like listening to the dialogue and a lot of my scenes when I write begin with an encounter between two characters and I would give one character a line and see how the other would would respond and uh, I think that makes it interesting for me and engaging for me is when I don't know what's going to come next. So I put two characters in a situation on a street corner, um, in a movie theater, in a living room, uh, in a bar, and I just see, give them one of them a line and see what's, gonna, what, what's the next person going to say? What, what's what's going to happen next? Because if I don't know what's going to happen next, then I can keep writing. If I know what's going to happen next, I kind of get bored with it. So I try and keep it as engaging and dynamic as possible. And uh, when you were writing Riverside Drive, did you know this would be a series? No. Um, I had the idea that I wanted it to be, but you don't really plan things that way. Um, I ended it, there was an end, without giving anything away, there's an ending so that you don't really know what the outcome is going to be. And I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And so I just kept writing. And even before it was published, I began writing the sequel, Maiden Lane. And uh, I thought, okay, what's going to happen next? And again, it's back to that idea of, I want to, I want to know what's going to happen next myself. It becomes interesting, becomes engaging, and I want to keep going with that. And so, no, I didn't have an idea that it was going to be a series. And uh, so I just kept writing. And then I started writing tangential sort of side stories, um, uh, side stories about characters um, that weren't primary characters, but were side characters or supporting characters. I only speak in cinematic terms. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's my natural. And um, so I started writing short stories about side characters. And uh, so they keep supporting it and bolstering it and uh, giving it a different kind of of momentum that I wasn't expecting writing just a straight narrative 
an arc like that. Um, so, so it sounds like you have more than one book on the go at a time. I mean, how does that work, keeping that all organized? It, it, it sometimes takes a flowchart and, <laughs> and Excel spreadsheets, and <laughs> I number everything, and I keep track of everything. And I have different folders in my Word uh, file saying, oh, snippets of this and snippets of that. And I have to keep track of this and, oh, this storyline, this storyline. There are so many threads and so many little little ends that I have to keep track of. And uh, so I have to it's, – it's difficult to sort of manage sometimes, and <laughs> it's sort of exhausting, but uh, it's well worthwhile. And uh, sometimes when, when I go back and open a file, it's like, oh, that was a pretty good idea. I should do something with that. Or that character was saying something, and I should let them speak some more or live some more. And that's some of it too is that you want these characters to keep living. And if you've got characters that you've, you've invested with some kind of a life and energy and uh, – vitality you want to let them sort of keep living and follow through with that some 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 somehow that's and so do you have in your your office do you have like a scene of the crime board do you have uh big posters and and photos and pictures and ideas i i've got a, a cork board and some um <laughs> um pins uh holding um copies of uh, notes and things. I, I tend to, also when I'm finishing, um, I tend to print things off because I'm, I'm very visual. And so what I will do is I will print off copies or snippets of an idea or a character or a, a bit of dialogue and I put it on the floor and I look at it. Mm. And so I have this map on the, on the floor in my study or in the living room. It was in the living room at sometimes. And I would map it out and look at it and I would just kind of trying to figure out where I was going with this. And so, yeah, I'm very visual, and I have to have ma things mapped out and just see dialogue all the time. I have to see the dialogue. I don't go as far as printing out actual scenes, like imagined scenes, but I have to print out dialogue and look at it on the floor, and I cut it apart sometimes, and I piece it together. And so your nonfiction book, Grey Cup Century, ironically paved the way to get your fiction published. Do you want to share a little bit about that? That was an interesting story. Um, my first novel, Riverside Drive, was um, um, being considered by my publisher, Dundurn Press, at the time. And my editor uh, phoned me one day and said, do you want to write a book about the Grey Cup? And I said, I don't know anything about football. And he said, I don't either. <laughs> he said, well, would you consider writing a book about the Grey Cup, like the history of the Grey Cup, not... CFL football but the Grey Cup okay yeah okay so I did that and I pieced it together and I did a lot of research and found myself very engaged in the subject and did other interviews um, with media talking about the Grey Cup and talking about the experience of writing this this book and uh, it was quite an experience and and I have to say um it was very rewarding in many ways in that uh, in the process of writing, I had to do so much research and I knew I found out very quickly how to research for a work of fiction or nonfiction. And I did that and uh, piecing it together and coming up with a narrative and building chapters. And it wasn't always just this one arc and this tends to be the way that I, I, I write. I write in uh, vignettes and uh, scenes and so each chapter became a scene or an 
era or an event or a game. And piecing all that together was an exercise that led to creating and finishing how I write fiction with Border City Blues and writing vignettes and scenes and piecing things together. Do you think you'd do that again? Write another nonfiction book like that? Uh, it depends on the subject. And, uh, well, it could be the subject or just the sheer challenge of it. Like, how dare he even consider doing something like this? <laughs> <laughs> and I might say, well, you know, you throw me the challenge and I might try that. But uh, I would consider nonfiction again. Um, there are other areas of nonfiction I'm interested in um, history, art history, that I might take a stab at I don't know but the thing is with Border City Blues is that branches out into so much history whether it's art history or street history or just political history or social history that um, I would find a challenge in any of those subjects. With um, St. Luke Road that's your next in this series. Yes. Uh, is there another project after the series or are you just going to keep on going with this series? What's I, your next project? I keep on going uh, depending where the, in this series, in Border City Blues, where the characters take me. I had always envisioned, um, whether it happens or not, the idea of my protagonist, Jack McCloskey, and the other protagonist going on for another decade. And I was always looking at the idea of the Border City Blues would end with the amalgamation of the cities, 1935, roughly. And so when Walkerville, Ford City, Windsor, Sandwich were amalgamated roughly about the same time, and that would kind of end there. And then it would also tie in um, the Ambassador Bridge and writing about the construction of the Ambassador Bridge. I've also researched that as well and uh, have looked at the trials and tribulations behind the financing, the building, the propositions, and the politics behind the building of the Ambassador Bridge. Which so that's intriguing. continue today. Yes. Yes, they do. Um, would you like to set up what you're going to read to us? I thought I would read from uh, the first chapter, the opening passages, of um, um, Prospect Avenue uh, for a few minutes. Uh, the opening chapter is titled In the Soup, and it picks up right where um, Maiden Lane leaves off. So uh, I've been writing these novels so that... So this is your second in the series? This is the third, this actually. The third. Prospect Avenue is the third, and so I try to... Um, make sure the action picks up right where the action leaves off in the previous novel. In the Soup Thursday, August 2nd, 1923 The roadster was bouncing like a mattress at the Honeymoon Motel. McCloskey stole a quick glance at the passenger wedge between him and Shorty and saw an expressionless face lit by the dim glow of the dashboard light. While it may have been a hot, humid night, his rescue was shivering like they had just pulled him from purgatory and smelled of standing water and smoldering grass. McCloskey had to shout out over the roar of the six gun-ho cylinders. Hey, kid, you all right? Nothing but dead eyes staring straight ahead at the open road. McCloskey was staring with nothing but dead eyes staring straight ahead at the open road. McCloskey was starting to think this one spoke neither the king's nor anyone else's English. Either that or he's being shy with it. 
He was also thinking he had seen eyes like this somewhere before, sinking in muddy trenches. With one hand on the wheel, McCloskey fitched, fixed his own eyes back on the tarmac. He had to be careful. There were no street lights in these parts, and this hour it was mostly drunks ricocheting their cars off roadhouses and the few cops still silly enough to be tailing them. McCloskey just kept dodging. His mind went back to a, controvert, a, con, a conversation he had overheard in a barber shop the other day, a discussion about the current pace and trend of things. He was also reflecting on how it seemed to be, it seemed to keep falling upon him to pull the bodies out of the mire, like when he was, like when he pulled his near dead brother out of a foxhole in France. Another member of the crew, Mud Thompson, had been with him on this particular rendezvous, a trip meant to forge a new business relationship. McCloskey saw it as another opportunity for Shorty to shine. But Mud had a certain edge to him, and McCloskey wanted to make sure it stayed sharp. Between the roadhouse and the shore, he had told Mud in a few select words to be inconspicuous tonight. Mud had simply nodded and took to the road. McCloskey and Shorty were heading to Oriental House, the place before Chappelle's. It wasn't far, just a skip down the road. McCloskey was counting on someone there knowing the lingo. The joint snuck up fast, so he started with the clutch and the gears, and he smelled the metal burn. He hung a sharp right into the parking lot. Shorty, what's his name? Shorty and what's his name reached for another reach for anything that might keep them from spilling out the door and onto the narrow boulevard. The roadster held together and stirred up some dust before grinding to a halt in the entrance. There were only two other vehicles making shadows under the floodlights, their drivers probably settling their tabs right about now. Shorty climbed out first. Jackie got my shirt wet. My trousers too. Send me the bill. Apart from the shivering, the Celestial wasn't moving. With a combination of gestures and loud talk, come on, let's inside. There, McCloskey got him walking. Like Chappelle's, it was a big old house built with good intentions, but now found itself standing on the wrong side of the town, refashioned into an eatery and illicit drinking establishment. They made their entrance, trying to keep it low-key, but their looks and demeanor probably screamed a little too loudly. In the foyer was a lectern that must have graced a church in the previous life. An eagle was emblazoned on the front, holding a sign in its beak that said, no reservations. McCloskey made his inquiries with a man standing behind it, a certain Frank Rhymes he read to be the proprietor. Rhymes looked, looked them up and down. No, he said, answering McCloskey's opening question. We ain't got no Chinamen here. What do you mean you don't got any Chinese? Isn't this place called Oriental House? We're working an Oriental theme here, mister. Check the decor. We got bamboo. Rhymes gestured towards the curtain that led to the dining room, a doorway to the mysterious east. McCloskey walked over to the bamboo curtain and parted it with two hands. There was a waiter addressing the floor with a broom and turning chairs over onto tables. McCloskey dropped the curtain and returned to the lectern. Let's see the menu. Rhymes gave him, a, gave him a card. You got noodles? Of course we got noodles. It was our dinner special. Okay then, McCloskey said, scanning the card. We'll take some chicken lo mein to go, 
I think my friend here could use a hot meal. I think he could use a towel. What, you drag him out of the river? Shorty said, as a matter of fact, just make the noodles. Hey, wait, you serving? Rhyme stopped and turned. Nah, us and Chappelle are in agreement. McCloskey grabbed both sides of the lectern. He was thinking there might be an opportunity here. This agreement sounds like it might be a bit one-sided. Rhymes shuffled and blushed. They pay me a small stipend to stay dry, he said. In exchange, I keep out of trouble, uh, said McCloskey. He'd get a couple of the boys to come back later and lean on Chappelle, maybe swing some lumber, but some soft pine. They'd save the oak for the next visit, the next conversation. Be right back, said Rhymes. While Rhymes and unseen Reggie put together a takeout package, the trio wore the glaze off the tile on the foyer and tried to relax. McCloskey pulled out his pocket watch, examined his dead hands, shook it, and then held it to his ear. Gotta get this thing fixed. Shorty was tapping the side of the fish tank and managed to scare a goldfish that looked big enough to be an appetizer. The stranger stood there, silent, dripping, and shivering, his arms wrapped around his shoulders in a feeble effort to warm up. Rhymes came out with the goods. Three little white cartons. McCloskey popped one open, and his partners gathered around him. This, he said, what's this? It's what you asked for. These noodles. It looks like spaghetti. Trust me, the locals don't know any difference. McCloskey handled the cartons back. No, they wouldn't, especially after you've dazzled them with decor. Come on, boys. Shorty hesitated, did a double take between McCloskey and Rhymes, then grabbed the Celestial's elbow and led him back out to the roadster. Where to, he said. Downtown, said McCloskey. Now. Yeah, said McCloskey. Now. You know, said Shorty, stopping suddenly. You got that thing again. McCloskey stopped. What thing? Shorty let go of the Chinese so that his hands could do some of the talking. The thing you get when you're going on about something, and I'm not sure exactly where you're going with it. When I get going on something? Yeah, said Shorty. Shorty, what? Maybe not in front of the company? Jesus, Jack. The soggy stranger stood still, observing, listening. Get in, everybody, said McCloskey. Let's go. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.